This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. I'm excited to share that you can now find sculpture on the Art UK website alongside over 200,000 paintings. We'll be adding more sculptures all the time, so please be sure to head over to the site and have a look around. Our sculpture photography project is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, and you can keep up with what we're up to by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. If you're not familiar with today's topic, this is going to be like the scene from The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy steps into the Technicolor dream world of Munchkinland. If you walk the halls of most galleries with classical sculptures, what do you see? Pristine white marble busts and figures dating from the classical period through to today. In reality, these ancient Greek and Roman sculptures were originally painted in bright colors, and while many people aren't aware of this, this knowledge isn't new. Scholars, at least, scholars in, uh, specialized in antiquity have owned this from the beginning. That's Cecily Bronze, senior researcher at Nye Carlsberg Glyptotech in Copenhagen, where she researches polychromy. Polychromy is the art of using multiple colors to paint architecture and sculpture. Already with the first excavations of sites such as Pompeii, scholars were aware that these artifacts were originally painted. They found sculptures with traces of polychromy uh, on them in excavations in Sicily and the first excavations of the Athenian Acropolis, for example. Scholars have been aware of polychromy since at least the 1700s, and there are researchers dedicated to this field today, but somehow it's still not reflected in the sculptures we see in museums. I asked Cecilia why she thought that might be the case. I think it has something to do with our preference for white marble sculptures. They appeal to the Western ideals. We find them very beautiful and clean in a way, and aesthetically appealing. It's curious to me that these classical sculptures were painted in such brilliant, bold colors, and we have so few remaining examples of what they originally looked like. It made me wonder how it's become the norm to expect marble sculptures to be white rather than their original state. Even if you look at a film set in ancient Greece, one would expect to see pure white buildings and sculptures. Some of these sculptures we know were, in fact, intentionally cleaned before they were sold at the art market, which was the way it was done at that time in the 17 and 1800s. Sometimes the art dealers, for example, cleaned them on purpose to make them look nicer and to gain a better price at the market. And sometimes they were also cleaned when they entered museum collections, but not always. But the primary reason why these uh, sculptures are white today is the, the nature of ancient paint. Because ancient paint consisted of two components. Uh, First of all, the pigments, of course, which provided the color. These pigments were often inorganic and uh, therefore preserved. Let's say, for example, something like ochre. It doesn't disappear like that. But the paint is not there because it also needed a binding media to stick together, to make it into paint and to make it stick to the surface. In this case, the marble sculptures. And these marble uh, binding media were organic in nature. They were made from egg, maybe egg yolk, for example, egg white or milk or a plant oil or animal glue. And all these components are organic. So when they're in the ground for, let's say, several hundreds or even thousands of years, 
these uh, binding media have dissolved. So the paint have actually just yeah, dissolved and disappeared. So not necessarily on purpose. So sometimes the cleaning is on purpose and sometimes it has just disappeared naturally. So we can determine how some classical sculptures lost their pigment, but at some point it must have fallen out of fashion to paint sculptures altogether. More modern marble sculptures, for example, were never painted, even when inspired by Greek and Roman themes and aesthetics. It appears uh, through our research that these ancient sculptures were painted both during ancient Greece, for example, and in ancient Rome, but also later periods and also in medieval times. But sometimes later on, Fashion changed somehow. When we see, for example, neoclassical sculptures, say Canova, for example, who's quite well known, he uh, does not paint his, uh, paint his marble sculptures. Or the other sculpture, uh, sculptor, Bertolt Torvaldsen, for example, a, a fellow Dane, he preferred to leave the sculptures in, in the white marble. So that was the aesthetic ideal during the neoclassical period, at least. If you've never seen a recreation of how some of these sculptures originally looked, please head over to the article for this episode on artuk.org while you listen. It's really worth seeing. After seeing some, I wondered if maybe the palette was largely restricted to primary colors, but it turns out the designs were rich in a rainbow of hues. The type of research we do, we look for, of course, uh, all the different pigments that are used. And even though they're quite sparse, these color traces, we can see there is a wide range of color mixtures, for example, mixing all sorts of different pigments and colors together to and use uh, the use of shadowing, for example, and nuances, different nuances. So it's not just primary colors, I would say. It appears that it was extremely colorful in all sorts of nuances and also pastels, etc., etc. At least from the Roman period onwards, well, actually already from the Hellenistic period onwards, we see a very wide range of colors used. And are there examples that you can look to maybe in paintings of buildings or other visual representations of sculptures and buildings that show these sculptures in situ so that you can see how they looked in context? Not sufficiently, unfortunately. I wish there were many, many, many more examples, but unfortunately there isn't. We do have some painting preserved, the famous uh, paintings from Pompeii and Herculaneum, for example, where we do see some renderings of very colourful architecture and a little bit of sculpture, but not so much, actually. We don't really have that kind of smoking gun, in a way, this kind of clear evidence. So we have to rely more on science, actually, examinations of the sculptures themselves to be able to say something about their original original uh, polychromy. Why is it you think that since we know now, or and maybe have always known that these sculptures originally were so colorful, why is it that we don't fix that either in restoring the works or even just our representations of works in film or other things? Well, there are several explanations to this. First of all, it's it's quite complicated to make reconstructions. It's a it's very time-consuming and very demanding because first we need to examine the sculpture in question, the one we wish to reconstruct. We have to examine it very, very carefully with different scientific methods to be entirely certain 
or as certain as we can be, which colors were used and binding media, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to say how it was originally painted. And when we've done that, and that takes months and months and months, then we have to de decide which kind of format we want uh, to reconstruct it in. Do we want to make a one-to-one -one copy? Will we do a plaster cast and paint it? Or would we prefer a marble copy? Sometimes we have done that, but it's very expensive, of course, and time-consuming. And then paint it with the original pigments, etc., etc. Or should we do a digital reconstruction? And that's what we are doing for the time being in the museum where I work. We are trying to experiment with digital reconstructions because they're a little bit easier to make, actually, and to adjust when we get smarter and gain more knowledge. But when it comes to the original sculptures, we would never repaint them because our prime uh, job at the museum, in, in my opinion at least, is to preserve these sculptures as good as we possibly can and not do them any sort of, of harm whatsoever. So they're still here in several thousand years, hopefully. So we would never add any paint, of course, to the original. We would do a reconstruction. And that is quite demanding scholar-wise, like knowledge-wise, and also with regard to finances. By now you may be wondering how it is that researchers were able to determine the use of pigments on sculptures that are seemingly devoid of color. There are careful, systematic ways to gather information when paints have been cleaned or decayed over time. We have different methods. First of all, we actually start very simple but by looking very carefully at it, but with a microscope to look if there are tiny visible traces of color left. Usually there's hardly anything left, just tiny, tiny, tiny spots of color. So that's where we start with the microscope to detect where do we have color traces. And then we uh, continue with non-invasive analysis. That means types of analysis that does not harm the artifact in any way because we prefer to avoid to take any samples, for example, because we really, really try to look out for these sculptures for the future. Some of these uh, methods are photographic methods. We use one method called visible induced luminescence, or VIL in short, which is a photographic technique which was invented in 2009 at the British Museum by a scholar by the name Giovanni Veri. Uh, he invented this uh, method of analysis and it's really useful, first of all, because it's relatively easy, relatively. You need a camera and some filters and some, some light sources. And it's non-invasive, which is very important. And this specific method can detect a pigment called Egyptian blue. In fact, it can actually detect three different pigment also, besides Egyptian blue, also hand purple and hand blue. But since we're dealing with Mediterranean artifacts, it's not uh, pigments from the Han Dynasty in China, but it must be Egyptian blue. And this specific pigment is really interesting. It's probably the first synthetic pigment invented. And we know it from at least the third millennium BC from Egypt. And then it spread to Mesopotamia and to ancient Greece, Rome, Spain, all the like Mediterranean littoral. So it was a widely used synthetic pigment, which could be used to create a bright beautiful blue color, but it was also used in paint mixtures for purple and, and green and, and so on, and even in black and for creating shades and shadowing on the, on the paintings. 
And of course, this only proves the use of one color, but it's very, very important to us because it shows us that it was painted. So at least we can see the blue with this method. So it's a good place to start. From there, methods that can help pinpoint colors get even more high-tech. Some of the other methods we use are also UV photography, for example. We use to detect organic colorants, and we use something called X-ray fluorescence, or just XRF, where we use a handheld apparatus to examine the sculptures. It's also non-invasive, and it can tell us something about what is present on the surface of the sculpture, so we can analyze what kind of pigments were used. So we have different non-invasive methods we use before we start taking samples and sending them for analysis. Some of the reconstructions I've seen are very detailed and mm -hmm. can show patterns and colors that are placed very close next to each other. So how is it that you're able to look at the color across the sculpture to that level of detail? Or is it that you take maybe a part of it and then you can duplicate a pattern across other parts? Well, it's a little bit of both, actually. And I think it's also important to stress that no matter how detailed and how careful we are with our examinations and different types of analysis, before we start making reconstructions, there will always be a level of subjectivity to these reconstructions. We will never be able to entirely reproduce the exact way these sculptures originally looked because there are just too many um, holes in our knowledge. We always have to keep that in mind when we look at these reconstructions, that they're, do I dare to say it, qualified guesses, actually, based on, mm. of course, a lot of scholarly analysis and investigations and comparisons with other artworks and historical knowledge and archaeological knowledge. But there is a high level of subjectivity, which I find quite important to stress. In this series, we ask why a lot. Why are topics not only interesting, but important to research? This research area is about more than reflecting the colors in the sculptures accurately. There's other anthropological information that we can extract when we gather this data. We have just, well, for a couple of years ago, examined uh, a really interesting uh, sculpture of a man wearing a toga. It was performed by some of my colleagues, Rege and Amelie and Marie-Louise. They examined the sculpture and they found that he was wearing a toga and it was in fact painted with a, it was white and with a border, which was entirely orange, which is really interesting. And I know that sounds really uh, <laughs> a little bit nerdy, but it's really interesting from an archaeological perspective because it means that we need to reinterpret this sculpture entirely because he was evidently not wearing an elite toga because that then it would have been purple. So we were quite surprised to find the first orange toga in antiquity. And it turns out it's actually because he was a freed slave, and that's why he was not allowed to wear this purple toga. So sometimes these color details can tell us and provide us really important information on how to interpret some of these uh, artworks we look at. And then it also, I guess, provides a little more insight into things like what people dress like and their fashions and the types of exactly um, 
um, textiles that were existing. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and that's another detail I think is really interesting because a lot of people have that impression that not just the sculptures were entirely white, but also the garments that people wore. And that was far from the case. And they wore dresses and garments in a wealth of colors because, of course, the textiles themselves have disappeared today. They're organic, so they've disappeared in the archaeological record. One of the only sources we have left is uh, the iconography, such as the sculptures. So it's actually misleading that they are white. And these, this kind of uh, research also shows that people were wearing all sorts of colorful garments, blue and purple and orange and yellow and green and I don't know what, all sorts of of colors. But another, I think, even more important reason why we need to do this kind of research is that the colors disappear, not from day to day. It's not like the colors will disappear next week, but they fade. They've been excavated and now they're standing in museum collections, perhaps more than 100 years. And these colors actually appear to be fading with time just because of, yeah, because of the climatic conditions and also light and radiation, and et cetera, et cetera. Studies like this provide a great opportunity to reframe the way we look at things. Next time you're looking at a film on the Spartans or walking through a gallery full of Grecian marbles, try to imagine the brilliant colors they would have originally contained. I find it really interesting that what we see in the museum collections are in a way just skeletons, very beautiful skeletons but just skeletons, white skeletons, which were entirely painted. And we can gain so much more knowledge on the interpretation of these artworks by adding these colors, which are today invisible and almost missing. Well, more or less actually entirely missing. Has this changed the way you look at Greek and Roman sculptures? Did you already know about polychromy? Tweet us using hashtag ArtMattersPodcast and let us know your thoughts on this episode. Also, let us know any ideas you have about things you'd like us to talk about in the future. You can find images related to today's discussion on our website at artuk.org. Thanks so much for joining me today. Be sure to rate and subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And most importantly, please join us again next time.